Hello and welcome to the Forbes India Cover Story podcast series in association with the indicast.com. My name is Abhishek and this issue's cover chronicles the most successful Marwari business families from India. Joining me to talk about one of the most enterprising clans in our country is Abhilasha Khaitan, editor features and special projects. Hi Abhilasha. Nice to have you back again. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. We've spoken not too long ago. And this time, what was the idea behind writing exclusively on Marwadi business persons? How did you guys go about planning this one? So it seemed like a bit of a natural fit because Marwaris are one of India's most important business communities. Some of the top businesses are owned by them. For Forbes, which tracks entrepreneurs so closely, it just seemed uh, really interesting to delve a little deeper into the Marwari business DNA. That was the logic behind looking at a community special, which is the first time ever actually that we have attempted. Right. And what took you so long, some might argue? Because this time I see there's a pretty long list of at least a hundred small and business enterprises where you have ranked according to profits and revenues in addition to series of essays that you have on various entrepreneurs. So what took you so long? <laughs> uh, I think it's more a factor of doing it in one go as opposed to doing it a string of stories which we have in any case been doing for a while because in any case, all, most of these companies do make for standalone corporate and business stories. So for us to sort of piece it together and to get into a little bit more about the cultural aspect of the community, which also enables their business aspects, I think that is something which we thought, you know, let's give it a shot and see what comes up. And some of the findings were very interesting. And so I'm glad we did it this time. As you mentioned, this is the first time that uh, Forbes India has done this. So what can the reader expect when he or she picks up this issue? What are some of the highlights, if you may? I think all the stories are interesting takes on their business style, on their approach towards building and creating a value for themselves and for their community and for the economy actually at large. So one of the interesting packages for me personally was the media package where we spoke with some of the top media business owners who all happen to be Marwari. So from Hindustan Times, Shobna Bhartia, to Rajasthan Patrikas, Kothari's, to Shavivek Goenka and his son Anand, as well as uh, Puneet Goenka of Z. So frankly, apart from the Times Group's uh, gens, I think we really managed to speak with all the top Marwari-owned media businesses. And it's quite interesting that the genesis of all these businesses were sort of different and yet similar. For a couple of them, it was a sense of nationalism because they were started in pre-independence India or at a time when India needed a voice. To Rajasthan Patrika's story, which is really about uh, wanting to give the community a voice because of the kind of issues which were being faced and there wasn't really a way to sort of communicate that. And in the case of Subhash Chandra, it was just about looking for an opportunity to bring entertainment to people at home and that's how he decided to get into the television media business. So the reasons were different but it just transpires that all of them are Marwaris. They're doing good as well as now making obviously profits. Right. And you have entrepreneurs from various cultural backgrounds and ethnicities. Now, what makes the Marwadis any different? We associate them right from our childhood as being entrepreneurial. And your opening essay also mentions the Marwari way. 
So from your various essays and research, what could you dig into as to what the Marwadi way is or what makes them so different? Their roots, I think, kind of defines them because a lot of the people we spoke with also said that since they come from Rajasthan, from the desert region, they kind of know how to make the best of tough situations. So it's kind of genetically coded that if you're thrown into a difficult situation, they're going to find a way to make things work for themselves. And also, I think since they took the big risk of leaving their home region and moving into different parts of the country where they knew nobody, they have that innate ability to, say, take a chance, to say, okay, I'm going to venture out and I'm going to do something different, but with a plan. If you read some of the stories about unlisted companies as well, one of the common threads is that they all know how to make the numbers matter to keep the cost low, and that can be the big difference between a successful and unsuccessful business. And the other interesting thing is also the joint family system where somebody said that they know that even if something doesn't work, they have the family to count on. They have the support of the family. And that is an enabler in uh, a very big way for them. So I think a bunch of these factors, right, from from the family to their understanding of finance to their biological need to, say, take a chance, take a risk, I think all of that adds up to a proper definition for an entrepreneur, which really is their story. You mentioned about they are not very averse at leaving their home soil and going about in search of opportunities. I, I remember I was in Bangalore for a bit and there was this lane of shopkeepers and they were all small shopkeepers, but they knew the local language pretty much as well as the local there knows. They do that little extra bit as compared to others perhaps. Oh yes, absolutely. As you'll see in some of our stories as well. So for instance, Cuckoo Paul's a lovely take on some unlisted Marwari companies. She speaks about Mahiko. The promoters speak fluent Marathi and in a different dialects also, she said. They do tend to sort of belong to the region where they set up shop. It's easier. So uh, yes, you're absolutely right. And most of these businesses have been, uh, the baton has been passed from the fathers or the grandfathers. So how different is, let's say, this generation as compared to the previous ones? If you can cite a couple of examples as to their way of doing business, has it changed or it's more of the same? It's a very case-by-case thing. You can't really generalize that everybody's style of working, but a lot of the business practices now have to become more professionalized. There has to be a lot more modern take on it. For instance, they say that the Parta system of accounting in Marwadis, which is a very old-fashioned thing of a daily check on profit and loss on a daily basis, I think that in some sense is still used across the board. You know, no matter how modern your business is, it is something which defined their uh, business style for generations. So it continues to sort of be used in some form, maybe not in its original form, maybe not in a very stated form, but it is still being practiced. So I think there are some things from the older generation which made sense, which is why they worked. Modern practices, getting in professionals, increased use of technology, all of that will happen. Otherwise, it becomes obsolete, right? It doesn't make sense then. So it's really a mix of the old and new. And yet, talking about bringing in professionals, uh, some section might argue that the community is a little averse to bringing in CEOs or bosses from outside the community. Would it be fair to say that they are a little skeptical in getting outside help? 
If you read Mr. Kumar Mangalam Birla's interview, the headline points for that piece basically state that it's no longer a choice. Professionalization is no longer really a choice. And the bigger the size of your operations, the more the need for professionalization. It's just a matter of degree. Uh, one of the pieces by Mr. Bhandari, where Kuku again opened Mr. Bhandari, and she says that there are different sorts of business models. And... Each one has a degree of separation in terms of the kind of professionalization you want. In some cases, you completely hand them over and you're like an outside strategic investor. In some cases, you bring them in, but you still maintain control of the big picture. It really depends on a case-by-case basis on the amount of control the promoters want to let go of. Fair enough. And last couple of questions, uh, Avila said, how did you go about anchoring this one as opposed to the others that you've done in the past? Uh, for instance, even the rankings bit. So the data was really sourced from Capital Line and cross-checked by the edits team uh, with uh, BSE India and other sources. And uh, then internally, we devised a ranking system whereby uh, we rank them on sales and on profit. And then we did a cumulative rank to come up with the final rank, which is what you see in the magazine. Also, the different stories, the, the process of any stories, will it be interesting to read? Is there a different take? Will they be able to offer diverse perspectives? And, and which is what we got in this mix. There are some common threads, of course. The common threads are about the fact that they all took a risk at some point of time, the fact that the families are key to most of these stories, as well as the scale is actually pretty large. I mean, none of them are small businesses. So we did a cross-section really of companies, which would make for interesting reads. And also for us, there would be some learnings. And that's how the selection was made. Great. I think on that note, it's time to wrap up. And uh, thank you very much, Abhilasha. You're welcome. Thank you. And and all you listeners, you can get this podcast on ForbesIndia.com as well as on iTunes and pick this issue up and let us know what you feel about it. Comment in the podcast section. And to have someone contact you from Forbes for a subscription, just message Forbes to 51818.